In gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to be here in this place with us this morning. We trust that you are here in our midst. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I had a professor in seminary who taught us something really wise about preaching. Of course, it wasn't my preaching professor, because remember, my preaching professor was a mime. (laughs) Looking out now, I'm realizing that I may need to tell the my preaching professor was a mime story every couple months. We have enough new people all the time that I can't just casually mention that my preaching professor was a mime without the congregation saying, wait, what? (laughs) So yes, my preaching professor was a mime, but this story isn't about him. Maybe one Sunday soon. (laughs) Anyway, this other professor of mine said about preaching that many good and true things will not be said on a given Sunday morning. And that's a good word. Part of the sermon writing process is figuring out what not to say. I remember hearing an interview once with a great film director, and he said that sometimes it's the cutting out of one of his favorite scenes that makes the movie work. Now, it may be a great scene with wonderful dialogue, palpable emotion, beautiful setting, and amazing acting, but it doesn't fit with this story that's being told right now. And in the same way, there's no part of the Bible that we wouldn't say is great, edifying, and worth proclaiming, but you've probably all sat through a sermon before where it seemed like the preacher was trying to say everything. That said, I'm going to preach two sermons this morning. Now, in my defense, one of them is going to be really short, But for all intents and purposes, I'm going to be adding a scene to this sermon. Uh, The first sermon I want to preach, the short one, is going to be on the passage that immediately precedes Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds from our assigned gospel lesson this morning. It's the parable of the sower. Understanding that text just a little bit for a minute will help us understand the parable of the wheat and the weeds all the better. Because both of them, on their faces, are frustrating stories. And they're frustrating in similar ways. They both acknowledge human passivity. Now, in the parable of the sower, Jesus compares people to different kinds of soil, a path, rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil, onto which the word of God is sown like seed. And all of those people, except those compared to good soil, lose out on the word. Some gets snatched away, some choked out, some withers and dies. 
Only the good soil keeps the seed and produces fruit. And the frustrating part of the story is that there doesn't seem to be any indication that you can change what kind of ground, what kind of soil you are. Jesus doesn't seem to have any good news for people who are rocky ground or on the path or whose seeds fall among thorns. So at first blush, you have to just assume that you either have to hope that you're good soil on which God's word will fall and take root, or that you have to somehow vainly work toward becoming good soil in order to earn that fruitfulness. And neither of those two interpretations are anything like good news. But let's look again, because our frustration is misplaced. We're missing the point. There is actually great good news in the parable of the sower, this seemingly frustrating story. Because don't miss this. There is seed that falls on good soil. The sower, our sower, knows what he is doing. By all rights, the path, the rocky ground, the thorns, those would be everyone's story. As broken by sin as this world is. The gospel, though, the good news has gone out. It has been announced. And if we hear God's word made manifest in Jesus Christ, understand our need and cling to him as our savior, we will actually flourish. We will be full of life, growing, thriving, blooming with the love of God in Christ. So in the parable of the sower... Instead of the passivity being the source of our frustration, the passivity is the point. We cannot and do not need to save ourselves. God saves us in Jesus Christ by sowing the seed exactly where it needs to go. And now, let's turn our attention to The next part of Matthew chapter 13, we find that Jesus has more to say about seeds. He's still in an agricultural mood. He goes right into another plant parable for the people. A man, he teaches, sows good seeds in his field. But while he's sleeping, an enemy comes and sows a bunch of weeds among the wheat. And as the plants grow, the man's servants, his slaves, notice and they come and see him. Hey, boss, something is up with your field. You sowed good seeds, but now it's riddled with weeds. What happened? The man answers simply, an enemy has done this. Well, the servants say, do you want us to go and clean the weeds out of the field? And the man says, no, if you do that, you'll accidentally pull up a bunch of wheat too. Just leave it until the harvest time when my reapers will pull it all out and they'll take care of the separation. Weeds into the fire and wheat into my barn. Now, thankfully, in addition to being in this agricultural mood, Jesus is also in an explaining mood. Just like he explained the parable of the sower for us, he has an explanation for the parable of the wheat and the weeds too. And this is one of those rare parables 
where all the various parts of the story equate one-to-one exactly with another thing. These one-to-one parables are actually not that common. Normally, Jesus is telling more general stories to make a point. But here, everything in the story stands directly for something else. Jesus himself is the sower, the field is the world, and the wheat is the children of the kingdom. The enemy is the devil, and the weeds are his children. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. The barn and the fire are heaven and hell. Notice that there is one thing in the parable that doesn't get a parallel. It's the servants of the master, the slaves, the ones who come wondering why the field is full of weeds and then offering to clean it out. Who are those people? Well, I've read some Old Testament scholars who suggest that the fact that Jesus doesn't give us this one-to-one interpretation for these characters is an invitation to put ourselves in this place in the story. These are the people to whom Jesus is speaking. This is us. Now, Fair warning, this can be a dangerous practice, right? Finding yourself in the parable. We are generally not too good at this. We tend to misrepresent ourselves. I must be the servant, we think, who turned his five talents into ten. When really we are more like the servant who, afraid of the master, buries his talent in the ground. Or we think, I'm probably the good Samaritan. Or at the very least, I should be, when really we are the man lying beaten and battered by the side of the road. And it is Jesus who is the good Samaritan, crossing the road to us, binding up our wounds and nursing us back to health. Or maybe the best known example like this, which is admittedly not a parable, but works in exactly the same way. I'm David, we think defeating the struggles in my life with God's help, when actually you are the cowering Israelite army and God himself is your champion, securing a victory for you that you could never earn. But here, Jesus, in telling this story the way he does, matching everything up one-to-one except these servants, leaves us no way to misinterpret, leaves us no place to accidentally put ourselves incorrectly. Everything gets an explanation. There's only one place left. We are the servants of the master. And it makes sense, right? Aren't they saying the exact kinds of things that we would say? God, what's going on? I thought you were good. But look at what's happening in the world. What's the deal with all the sin and corruption? This field is infested. And then we make God an offer. Would you like us to clean up around here? We can make everything neat and orderly again. And now Jesus' story becomes frustrating. Infuriating, really, just like the parable of the sower seems to be. Because God's response to his people is so frustrating, so unsatisfying. God, we say, 
What's the deal with all the sin and corruption? An enemy has done this. Okay, we say, well, do you want us to get to work? Separating the wheat from the weeds, clean things up. We're happy to do it. No. Let them grow up together. Uh, Okay. Well, for how long? Until the end of time. This is the way things are going to be in God's field, in this world, until the end. Wheat and weeds growing up together. And this is just the way things are. This is, again, frustrating, just like the parable of the sower. The frustration there was the seeming consignment of people to be certain types of ground, to certain fates. It was so passive. There was nothing we could do here in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It's that the world is a broken place and that we are to be passive again. We aren't going to be able to fix it. Now, listen, our calling is still in place. We are called, as the prophet Micah says, to do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. We are recipients of the great commission and the great commandment called to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that we have ourselves learned from Jesus. We are called to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And these things done together will without a doubt absolutely have an impact on this world. Look at the church throughout history and consider what the world would be like if it hadn't existed. Almost every change for the good that you can name has been inaugurated by people who were doing it in honor of and in service to the Christian God. Hospitals. Universities, abolition, good works come from faith in God, and they change the world. A desire to conform our lives and this world to his image. And we should and will be about these things. But even as we are, look out the window. Wheat and weeds growing up together. Murder, lust, hatred, godlessness. This parable is God telling us the truth. You won't be able to fix the world. Okay, that's bad news. But as with all of God's stories, the bad news is never the last news. It's never the final news. The full story here is you won't be able to fix the world. I'll take care of it. This is the good news of this story and why we, once again, seem so passive in it. God is reminding us that we are not the saviors of the world. He is. You see, we are inclined to think that we should begin the work of weed eradication. 
Because we think we are able to discern right from wrong, good from evil. Surely we think God can leave the separating work to us. But we've been crippled on that score since we ate the fruit in the garden. Thank God that this work is left to God himself, carried out by his angels at his direction at the end of time. Because we think that we can tell the difference, right? Good from evil, righteous from sinner. Everyone thinks it. Normally delineated by us and them. The Jews in the Old Testament thought they were pure and that the nations were evil. But their prophets told them that they were wrong. They were chosen, but not pure. At the time of the Reformation, both Protestants and Catholics thought that they were right and righteous, even as they killed each other by the thousands. And today we assume the same kinds of things that we can tell right from wrong. We can tell privileged from underprivileged, oppressed from oppressor, saint from sinner. But we're no good at this. The implication of this parable is that we don't know the difference between wheat and weeds. You know what the sower says? Don't even try. You can't really tell the difference. You're going to get some good plants at the same time you try to pull up the weeds. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from Scripture about how this works. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus describes a dinner at which the door has been closed. And people come and knock, expecting to be on the guest list. But the master of the house says, I don't know you. And the people protest that they've been right here. They live in this neighborhood. They've, they've been here all along. And then to their shock, people start to come from all over, north and south, east and west. In other words, people not even from around here. They show up and they go in to the party. We're not very good at knowing who's in and who's out. Thank God that we are not the saviors of the world. He is. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes the Lord separating sheep from goats in the final judgment. And both groups are surprised. Right? Lord, when did we ignore you? Say the ones going off into the fire. Lord, when did we help you? Say the ones who are being saved. We're not very good at knowing who's in and who's out. Thank God that we are not the saviors of the world. He is. For all of our attempts to distinguish wheat from weeds, good people from evil, it turns out that as the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, that the line between good and evil passes right through every human heart. Here's the truth. We would all be weeds but for Jesus' miraculous intervention. Thank God that we are not the saviors of the world. He is. Of course, it makes sense that we would want to save the world, to fix it, 
to separate the wheat from the weeds. We can see how broken it is. We have a vision, like John does in Revelation 7, of how things ought to be. A single worshiping community made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation all singing praises to God. All washed and identical white in the blood of the Lamb. We pray this, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to create that perfect worshiping community. But we don't have it within ourselves to accomplish it. But God has good news. I will do it. I am the Redeemer. Jesus Christ is my rescue mission. Leave it to me. So even though the wheat of the church is growing up in a weedy world, there is good news here. And it's the same good news as it was in the parable of the sower. Jesus, as it turns out, is just on a roll. And of course, it's, just, it's not just the good news from these two stories. It's the good news of the whole biblical story, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that we don't have to be our own savior, making ourselves into the right kind of soil or creating a perfect world by pulling up all the weeds. The passivity is the point. The good news is that you have a Savior who is not you. In this world, Jesus preached in John 16, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This world is infested with weeds sown by the evil one. But take heart. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Although we can't by our work create that totally unified worshiping community we see in Revelation 7, that feast attended by people from every direction, a field of pure wheat praising the name of the Father, we can trust that Jesus can and we can know that Jesus will. John's vision is a promise that this will happen, that Jesus is creating it even now. So though we can't create that community we can sing their song. The song that they sing around the throne, telling people about the God who created the world and who now in Jesus Christ is redeeming it. We'll sing it at the end of our service today, an example of a similar song, In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. We can't be the saviors of the world. But we can announce that that Savior has come. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus has lived and died and been raised again for you. For all your sin on him was laid. Here and now, in the death of Christ, you 
live. You live, but only in the death of Christ. The wrath of God is satisfied, but only by Christ alone. And it is satisfied right now for you. Amen.